0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day again. Uh, that's many, many, many in a row. We thank you for them, and we we do not want to take for granted uh, this beautiful uh, world that you've given us to live in. The the many gifts and graces that you uh, rain upon us every day, Lord. We we are so thankful for all of your uh, unending gifts. And Lord, we we just ask that our hearts would be great, grateful hearts uh, that that we would be overflowing with thanksgiving. And that we would not give in to a human tendency to focus on the few things we may not have or may be struggling to hold on to rather than the manifold things uh, that, that we do have in you. And Lord, we, we pray that uh, we would especially focus on that we have salvation and, and that we have the opportunity to enter into your presence and be your sons and daughters Uh, Lord, as we talk about uh, today, outward means of uh, the conveying of the benefits of redemption, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to to what your word says and help us to have a beneficial and and profitable conversation. Uh, We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to quickly look at uh, questions 72 and 73, we did discuss uh, the word uh, and prayer and meditation uh, to some depth last time. So, question seventy-two is: How is the word made effectual to salvation? The spirit of God. And the answer is. Sorry, I did. The answer is, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Uh, We did talk about the notion of reading, but especially preaching, and about the idea of proclaiming God's word uh, being more powerful than uh, any other way that, that you can convey the word. Proclaiming it out loud to someone. And I, I don't want to get into uh, whether Zoom counts or you know, how you subdivide all the technology that we have, but um, when this was written, there was really two medium, right? Media. There was, you could talk to people about God's word, you could proclaim it, or you could write about it and then they could read, uh, or they could just read it itself. And the divines want to put the emphasis on the preaching of the word. Uh, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. So there's two aspects here. There's both the create the believer by the convicting of the spirit inside of them, using his word and drawing them to the cross, drawing them to himself. And it is his word by which he does this. And then once uh, you have believers hearing the word preached and reading the word, It becomes to them a comfort and uh, edifying force, building them up, making them more and more into God's people. Uh, I don't know if anyone tripped over the question itself, how is the word made effectual to salvation? It makes it sound as though the word is the actual means of salvation if you don't read it very carefully. Uh, and, of course, effectual to salvation. We're talking about salvation, again, in three tenses. Justified. You, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have been justified, washed clean. Being sanctified now throughout your life and will be glorified. These are all salvation terms and and, self, and aspects of salvation. And uh, it is the sanctification for the believer uh, that is being conveyed to you. This is the... the Uh, external and ordinary means of being built up and sanctified uh, is for God's word to be applied to you. Uh, For the unbeliever, the word itself is a means by which they are saved. Even their justification will come when God's word is proclaimed to them, the spirit convicts them, and they turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Uh, God's grace, of course, is the ultimate means uh, but our faith is an instrumental means and there are other, I mean, there are plenty of different kinds of, of causes and means. Uh, it, for example, if I call a uh, Uber, a guy comes and I get in the car, he drives me home, I get out my key and unlock the door and go. And you go, how did you get home? I mean, there are lots of different ways. Uh, but the main thing, obviously, that overrides all of this and is the driving force within all of this is God's grace. 73. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? Answer, that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend to it with diligence and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up onto our hearts and pr- practice it in our lives. While wow, those commas are a real mess. Aaron wants to get in a DeLorean and go back to 1677 and fix these commas. I, I don't, I'm i surprised Spurgeon didn't, actually. He so, he was a, quite an editor.
1: So, diligence, the one after that should be after prayer, instead of
0: diligence. That the word may become effectual to salvation. We must, to attend, salvation. To we must attend to it with prayer. diligence and prayer. Receive it with faith and love, comma, yeah, yep, yep. yep. Okay. I'm going to fix that on our copy of this <laughs> on the website. That's very confusing. This seems like common sense to me. If we were to have brought out a whiteboard and said, let's talk about how we should read God's word so that it will have an effect on us. I think over the course of 10 minutes, we would have probably collected all these things. Maybe not, certainly not in exactly these terms, but we would have had these, these ideas uh, that you read it carefully with diligence, that you don't just, uh, okay, but that you dig into it, you delve into it, that you read it prayerfully, that you read it with faith um, and, and apply it to your heart and your life, not just your mind. Uh, does anyone have anything to say about about this?
1: I think it's it's helpful to see that there is a way to read scripture that is effectual and a way to read it that is not, so that it it makes sense when you know somebody who maybe is not elect reads scripture and doesn't get anything useful truly out of it. Mm-hmm. it, it at least makes sense of that. Like, if God is in these scriptures, then why wouldn't everybody who reads them?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, in our text this morning, um, in in the service, even kings don't understand. The the, the, the most powerful and, and uh, well-informed people hearing God's word, uh, they, they don't grasp it. Jesus said, seeing, they don't comprehend. Hearing, they don't understand uh, that without God's spirit being involved, ultimately it's not going to have the, the full effect. But even these are human things you can kind of do, right? So when you encourage someone to read God's word, we know God, uh, if he's going to bring a sinner to, to faith, is going to be at work in their spirit. But we also know that his word is going to be most likely to have that effect if they are reading it carefully. And I would even maybe add here uh, in light of the rest of scripture, in keeping with its context, you know, I know a lot of people will carefully read the Bible, but they're, you know, m- microscope reading it, rather than zooming out as well and seeing, you know, how does it all fit together. Uh, they're, oh they're, yeah, right, I'll carefully read it. Yeah, you got it. And then you get together next time and, oh yeah, I very carefully read the section about how you're supposed to stone a woman and I'm so angry. and you gotta go, Okay, you, you also need to take into account the overarching meta narrative. Uh, the story that's being told here and how it's all for God's glory and our salvation.
1: Well, I think, too, this would be something that would make the difference between a faith that was kind of anemic if you were a believer but you really weren't reading God's word with these, you know, ways of doing it versus if you were really laying it up into your heart and practicing it in your life and all these things. It would be a difference between a, a kind of maybe unfulfilling faith where you believed, but you didn't really feel like it made a difference hmm. and a faith that was more fulsome?
0: Yeah, I, I think one could fall into that for a time. Yeah. But for it to be effectual to our salvation, one must have at, at some point encountered God's word in a way that really did come yeah. into their hearts and, and, in, and into practice in their lives. 74. Here we're going to get into some real fun stuff. How do baptism and the Lord's Supper become spiritually helpful? Baptism and the Lord's Supper become spiritually helpful not from any virtue in them or in him who does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those who by faith receive them. All right, now I told you last week that I was going to try to convince you that uh, sacrament is a good word. This is something I'm always working on. Uh, Baptists embracing the notion of sacraments. I like to call it the S word because I think it has that same sort of four letter kind of reputation amongst many Baptists. They don't want to say it. It's okay for Lutherans to use the S word. Certainly okay for Methodists or Catholics to use the S word. They use it all the time. But for us Baptists, uh, we, we stay far away. We think that it, it's a dirty word. We think that it's a word that's going to confuse people. It's a magical word. It's a superstitious word. Uh, and I've actually even had occasionally other Baptist ministers say, wait a minute, did you just say sacrament? And I'll tell, oh, yeah, of course I did. And then the room divides into those who say, yeah, no, that's a good word. <laughs> that's always fun. Um, But of course, we're talking about uh, baptism and communion, uh, the sacraments of the Christian church. And the reason I think that so many don't want to use the term is obviously because of misunderstandings, misapplications, misuses of the term and the idea going back ages, centuries and centuries. This idea that automatically, in the sacraments, there is a magical ability to kind of make you right and make you ready at that moment to get hit by a bus and still go to heaven. That Apart from what life you live, what faith you have in your heart, apart from whether you open every day with pouring out your heart to God or you never speak to him at all, as long as I go and take part in these particular ceremonies, these rituals, I'm okay. I think we've all known people who claim to be Christians who seem to work in that way, Uh, and I think certain traditions are more given than others to this kind of thinking. Uh, Aaron and I grew up somewhere where this was very common, like the jerkiest jerks, uh, the guys who would be notching the the belt all day long with, with young ladies, well, I gotta get to church because I gotta be right with God. How do I do that? Well, I mumble these words, I slug down this thing, and then I leave, and now that's God's plan. I can do whatever I want, and I just go back next time and do it again. And, of course, in some of these traditions, there's even more than just the two. Uh, and So you have all sorts of opportunities to kind of magically remain one of God's chosen people without having any fruit in your life or your heart at all. That's been a very real thing, and I think it goes back to medieval abuses. Uh, you know, the world in in the medieval church where you're putting money in the the coffers in order to spring great-aunt Edna from purgatory, where, you know, they they draw you back in and hold over your head. Your status with God is in our hands, Uh, not even in God's, certainly not in yours. And so you got to come to us and we've got these things. And if we choose to give them to you, poof, you're okay in God's sight. If we don't, you're in big trouble. Uh, The thing that makes that most blasphemous is that there's a little bit of truth mixed in there. That, that uh, I, I full, fully, wholeheartedly will affirm Cyprian's uh, formula that, that uh, no man can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Sure, but the use of, the misuse of the sacraments was a great travesty and one of the main things that led to the Protestant Reformation. And yet when the Protestant Reformation came, Luther did not immediately 86 the notion of sacraments. In fact, if you go to a Lutheran church today, you find that, that sacraments are uh, front and center. I, I don't know. Aaron, you're a Lutheran. <laughs> Would you say that sacraments are central to yes. the life of the church? Yeah, yes. certainly.
1: You do it every single week, and it's, I feel like it's, it's a, it takes up more time, probably, even in the service than the homily.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you, you do both of them every week? You get baptized and take the Lord's son no, 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 no. just the one <laughs> just the I want one. to clarify <laughs> sermon um, uh, my thought is throwing out the term because of medieval abuses is akin to when you see someone on social media describe themselves as a Christ follower because they think the word Christian has been ruined by whatever uh, right-wing politics or some demographic category or just hypocrites in general and I always ask, okay, what are you going to do next when Christ follower gets ruined because somebody who claims to be that acts jerkily? Uh, then are you just going to keep on kind of going like somebody who who has like flip phones and every time certain people get the number, they just throw it away and buy another one? Uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really. To my to my point of view, it actually denigrates the sacraments themselves that we're willing to just kind of keep on bouncing from notion to notion, idea to idea. Now, in in the course of the sacraments, one main term, ordinances, uh, in Baptist circles has become the replacement term. I don't know why the misuse of ordinances as as an idea, and it has been badly misused, as we'll see, hasn't caused anyone to go on to a third term uh, or to go back to the first term But I think that's because Baptists uh, don't change easily.
1: Did they change that like right at the beginning when the Baptist movement started? Or do they, was that word already around? Or do you know when that came into The
0: The word ordinance is used along, I mean, we'll see here as we go through it. I'll show you a a little bit of the evolution of it. Um, I think what we have here is a a pendulum swinging, though, which we have always throughout human history in almost every area and certainly in doctrine. Uh, where you you are going from the pendulum being up here uh, at magical uh, rituals that you can control that put you in God's favor, and now it's going to go whoosh all the way over to the other extreme, equally unbiblical, where it's essentially just something you can choose to do if you want to in order to remember what Jesus did for you and feel good about it. Uh, Both these extremes are bad. And you don't want to be part of a church that embraces either of them because the sacraments or the ordinances are so central to the church life and have been back all the way to Acts chapter 2. Uh, the biblical historic Baptist view, I think, avoids either the original problem from the medieval church or the overcorrective that many churches today that would claim the name Baptist uh, have. In fact, in, in, in British Baptist churches, you will very, very commonly continue to hear the word sacrament used. Uh, and of course, British Baptists are the original Baptists. Uh, our movement comes out of uh, the kind of dissenting churches and independent churches uh, of the Puritan separatist world. Uh, in fact, we were talking about this in this very room yesterday morning at this very time in our uh, Baptist history class. Understanding the necessity of faith in the one receiving the sacrament which is what is emphasized in our catechism here when an individual comes to the communion rail or goes under the waters of baptism and understanding that they're not what saves us and they're not necessary for our justification i think is key to reclaiming properly the idea and word sacrament I just said something that I think most sacramental traditions would get really uncomfortable with, which is that it's not a necessary aspect of being saved. That you could be saved without being baptized. And of course, the classic example is the thief on the cross. Lutherans love it when you bring that one up and want to argue with you because it's such an odd exception and uh, kind of comes during the convergence of Old and New Covenant and and, uh, different roll over from one economy of grace to another but certainly we don't understand baptism to have any kind of power to wash your sins actually away spiritually away we as baptists see it as a outward sign of an inward faith but not simply an outward sign for the people who are watching god is at work in it and so is the one who is being baptized the recipient of, of god's work the correct understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, as a sacrament, I think you find going back to the origin of the word. And I know I sound like a broken record, I'm always wanting to do that. And as always, like a broken record, let me warn you that that can be a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, if you if you always look to the etymology, the origin of words to find what they mean, you're going to wind up with some very goofy things and falling into some very serious logical fallacies. But This is a word that has been around in the Christian church for so long that going back to its origin is is helpful. And it comes from a Latin word, sacramentum, which means a solemn oath. And it comes from a a verbal root, which means to to sanctify or to set apart. Uh, Roman soldiers swore a sacramentum, an oath of loyalty to the emperor and the empire. And rather early in the church, the Christians... Then would essentially take that language and apply it instead to the oath of loyalty that they swear not to Curius Kaiser, the Lord Caesar, but Curius Christos, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that dichotomy of do you acknowledge and worship Caesar as Lord, God, and Master, or Christ as Lord, God, and Master, uh, is ever present in the early church. It makes sense then that they would take that language. And apply it instead of I commit myself and submit myself and affirm myself wholly as a servant of Caesar, as I do this wholly as a servant of Christ, and I do it while taking the emblems of his death on a Roman cross. Uh, it was something that certainly the the Romans hated and probably fueled some of their persecution. A, a sacrament is a picture. Yes, it's a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me but it is a living picture and I think that is the part we don't want to miss. It is a living picture and it it is a sign, yes, but because it is a sacrament it is tied incredibly closely to that which it signifies. It's a visible sign of an invisible grace. It is something that you can see and hear and smell and feel that is tied to something that you maybe can feel, but otherwise, with your senses, can't really um, even experience, other than spiritually, and then in these glimpses of these living pictures, uh, which God has given us as a grace, a gift. Our Baptist forebearers call the sacraments the means of grace. That is language you'll hear in Reformed churches, in Lutheran churches, in Presbyterian churches, uh, and... I often, Baptists will balk at that. The idea that it is a means of grace that I am able to take the bread and the cup is a means of grace that I go underwater or even a means of grace that I hear God's word preached. They say, no, 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 no. The, The grace is simply by the means of faith. And we say, we're not talking about the grace that initially saves you and washes you and brings you from death to life, but rather the sanctifying grace that continues to build you up and comfort you and make you able to serve Jesus, uh, to, to give you the power, the strength to overcome to the end, to give you perseverance, uh, to remake and uh, reform your spirit and renew your mind. All of these things that we long for, people who say, oh man, I, I, I keep on reading my Bible and I, and I keep on praying, but I'm not getting any more like Jesus. My first question would be like, are you going to church and are you taking the Lord's Supper? If you're not doing those things, that's like, you know, I'm not putting on any muscle. Well, are you eating any protein? Are are you eating at all, (laughs) right? I mean, are you taking in the things that that are the building blocks of this stuff? These are very, very important in Baptist thought, just as they are in every other type of uh, Reformation tradition. Until, rather recently, when for some reason the Western Baptist Church decided to downgrade them from sacrament to something less. Uh, Again, British Baptists still use the term a lot. American Baptists, it's fairly rare, although it's becoming more popular, especially in the American Baptist Church, uh, to hear the word sacrament. Uh, There's a generation of clergy now younger than myself, which is weird to me. Uh, And... (laughs) You know, their robes and sacraments and and very formal litanies and things for days. I think it's very cool. Uh, And I hope that God will use that to help the church rediscover some of the mysteries of the faith that have been sort of just written off so that we could be very business casual about it and use mission statement language and all this sort of thing to describe something beyond our ability to even grasp. Let's look at the history here. As early as 1614, if you know anything about Baptist uh, origins, you know this is really early. A Baptist confession in Amsterdam uses the term sacrament. That one I'm not going to put a ton of my eggs in, but it is there. Uh, 1678 I think is far more significant. Now remember 1689 is when the Second London Baptist Confession uh, from which our, our catechism is drawn is actually ratified and signed but that's only because that's when people could come out of hiding and do it openly. It was 1677 where it was actually finalized. So 1678, a different group of Baptists, the General Baptists in London, uh, they write in the Orthodox Creed, these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are ordinances of positive, sovereign, and holy institution appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it affirms dipping as the preferred biblical mode. It doesn't say immersion. It says dipping. Uh, and you hear in that both the use of the term sacrament and ordinance. They're, it's not a one or the other. It's not, I'm an ordinance guy, I'm a sacraments guy. No, it's, they're, they're both good terms, and they both describe baptism and the Lord's Supper, different aspects of it. So if you just call these things ordinances, you're actually using a broader term than probably what you mean. Uh, or, what is ordinance? Where does the word come from?
1: that's oh, order, right? It's Where related to the word order. order Isn't it? Yeah, like if you have a city ordinance, it's saying like in this, in this zone, you can do these things. Mm-hmm.
0: Something that's ordained. Yeah. And in the church, we're going to say it's something that was ordained specifically by the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So there are lots of things in the church that uh, even, for example, the Catholic Church considers sacraments that aren't ordinances like a square rectangle situation they say these things are uh ordered by scripture and by the church they're they're given the the stamp of approval as a sacrament but for example jesus never orders confirmation or you know some of these things uh an ordinance then is more specific but it's also broader because jesus ordained all sorts of stuff and we don't make every one of them one of the two focal points of Christian worship, along with preaching and prayer and singing and meditation. Uh, the ordinance emphasizes our obedience. Sacrament, despite the root being, being a, a oath that one takes, uh, emphasizes God's working in it. So ordinance emphasizes our obedience, our participation. Sacrament emphasizes God's working in it. You can see how in the American church, where there is more and more a tendency to sort of strip away uh, the mystery, even the supernatural from the worship of God, which is very odd to me, uh, and make it a kind of a natural thing. This is our origins all the way back to the deists who founded our country. Uh, You can see how it would appeal to focus instead on what we're doing, instead of on what God's doing, which is going to be a little scary and nebulous to us. We're not in control anymore. Now, it's noteworthy, obviously, that the word sacrament does not occur in this catechism. You're not going to find it anywhere. Uh, In fact, when you get to these passages here, obviously, the main difference between the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is the uh, Reformed Presbyterian uh, thing that we kind of ripped off, and the Baptist Catechism is going to be uh, the section on baptism, because they're sprinkling babies, we're dunking adults, or at least believers. But the whole section is different in that you don't have any reference to baptism or the Lord's Supper being a sacrament. And yet in that Westminster, uh, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, there are 26 references to sacraments. And then you see what we did to it for the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and there are zero. It was a very intentional thing to remove that term every time it comes up. If you're in the Westminster Confession of Faith in uh, chapter 28, you read, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Christ Jesus. You have there both ordinance and sacrament, both good terms, both describing the same thing, probably from different directions. And, And you may have seen here, definitely what we see here is protecting against the still very fresh memory of abuses. And if you are Baptist in London in the 17th century, your experience with the church, the persecuting church, the state church, is not with the Roman Catholic church, but rather with the Anglican church. For example, say you want to go and pray with a widow who also holds Baptist views, and you go into her home and pray with her for five minutes, close your Bible, walk out the door, and her neighbor sees you and runs and tells the magistrate, you're then arrested for holding an unauthorized meeting. Best case scenario, they put you in the stocks and pelt you with clods of dirt and rotten produce. Worst case scenario, they cut an ear off and carve some into your forehead. So they're wanting to distance themselves from some of what they saw as the superstition of the Anglican Church, and part of this is going to be rooted in the sacramentality. Um, Of course, if you know much about this period of history with the Church in England, uh, there's a struggle back and forth between Protestant and Catholic, uh, you know, between one monarch and the next, and they're they're, uh, going back and forth, and even within the Protestant sphere then, between the Anglican and more Puritan ideals, the Puritans wanted to purify worship become more calvinistic and become simpler in their worship and so there's this kind of dragging back and forth but through all of that it's never safe and it's never comfortable to be a baptist they'll all persecute the baptists at every turn so for example under elizabeth you have the book of common prayer and it's meant to be a book that can be opened and a catholic and an anglican side by side could read the same words in their hearts and minds, apply them just a little bit differently about what the Lord's Supper actually is and does, but with the same words could worship together. Nobody ever made one of those that would also include Baptists. Uh, and so the, the moving the pendulum, it makes sense to me historically, just like when we are reading the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, it says the Pope of Rome is that Antichrist and, and man of lawlessness, etc. cetera, et cetera. And you say, okay, historically, I see where you're coming from, looking at what the Pope was doing in in that time in recent centuries and the Inquisition and all the rest and how these are suffering uh, persecuted people. What I think they might have accidentally done, though, is I I think to when I would play tetherball with Calvin when he was little, I'd actually like to play with you again now that we're more equally matched. I think it'd be fun. But when he was little, I'd let him win a bunch when we were up at Lake Louise. And then at some point, he'd get a little cocky, and he'd be like, all right, I got to win a game. (laughs) And when you hit the tetherball... Hard enough that the, your opponent kind of just lets it go by, comes by again, and you hit it again in the same direction, and you just speed it up. I feel like that's kind of what happened with this confession of faith and and the catechism that comes out of it. The pendulum was already swinging, and they kind of by excluding the word sacrament hit it in the same direction it was already going, and maybe unintentionally helped a little bit to contribute to the state now where most people think of baptism and the Lord's Supper as being powerless or mere memorials. They don't take seriously the state of their soul before they take the bread and the cup, which we're going to do in the service this morning. Take seriously the state of your soul uh, because we know that many in Corinth had fallen sick or even died because they took it in an unworthy manner. This is not stuff to be flip about, It's not stuff to be cute about. These are the emblems of Christ's death, his body and blood, and the picture of our being purified in uh, his blood and, and going into his grave with him and rising again to new life with him. None of it's funny. None of it's big deal. It's all solemn and sacred. And certainly we don't see any movement away from that in this catechism, but I sure wish they had said, we're gonna keep that word and we're taking it back. You know, just like those divines who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which they were yoinking most of this stuff from, said, we're taking it back. We're not gonna let them, we're not gonna see that word, just like we're not giving them the cross, just like we're not giving them the concept of the Lord's Supper. We're gonna go back to the scriptures and we're going to, now the Baptists went back to the scriptures, said we don't see the word sacrament as such in the New Testament, but you also don't see the word ordinance. And we have to describe these things somehow. Uh, That was a bit of a rant, sorry. Um, Point being, even though they don't use the word, they clearly present the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And they describe these things as the ordinary and external means of God conveying the benefits of redemption. They're describing sacraments, even if they don't use the word. They're describing uh, the way that the church at large has understood a sacrament to function uh the evangelical the reformation church and then they're just calling them ordinances and i understand wanting to avoid the extremes but the ex- let's name the extremes one over here the, the one that they're trying to move away from is sacerdotalism s-a-c-e-r-d-o-t-a-l-i-s-m sacerdotalism this is now we're, we're relegating power to the priesthood And it's the sign itself that has all the power, not the thing that it signifies. So these things, they're almost like a vending machine, right? God puts the machine there. You put the quarter in and hit, you know, B1 for baptism and it comes out the bottom. C1 for communion, it comes out the bottom. And God is helpless when you come to the gates with that to redeem, you know, like a Chuck E. Cheese. You've got enough tickets, you get it. And and, uh, it really reduces... The, the most solemn thing in the world which is Christ's death on the cross to something very transactional and, and human centric so of course we're trying to move away from that that's what Luther was trying to move away but the other side is just called memorialism quick yeah.
1: question before you move on to that so does sacerdotalism, you're talking about the substances but does that also include the person who administers them, is that what you
0: just said does what include the person who the administers
1: them the word sacerdotalism
0: it's the whole uh, approach to it yeah yeah the idea that uh, you come to this guy and this is a transaction between you and a human institution now they've got God's stamp of approval almost like they've been given God's signet ring I don't want to make any other Christians into Haman in the story but like they, they're, they're, they're now stamping the stuff they would hold on to some of the statements of Christ to the apostles like whom you have forgiven is forgiven and whom you have not you know, withheld forgiveness is not forgiven and they'd say okay we have all the power here you got to come through us And we'll live very comfortably as a result becomes the sad uh, end result of all of that. Um, Zwingli is the the main guy behind the other extreme memorialism. And this is the idea that just as I look, I can take it off now. I haven't put that much weight back on there and I can still take off the wedding ring. Um, Just as I have a ring on my finger indicating that I'm married. But watch this. It's off. Still married. It's just a symbol. Okay, whether I wear it or not, it's just a symbol. It isn't what makes me married. It doesn't really have any intrinsic power. There are cultures where they don't even bother with rings, and yet they're still married. That was the Zwinglian view. It's It's just a picture. And you could do it, you could not do it. Jesus said to do it, so we'll do it because, you know, it helps us remember when we have the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. That is an aspect of it. But the mirror at the beginning of mirror memorial is going to say, that's all there is to it. And so in that way, I could sit and, well, the cross is covered here, but I could, if I put the screen up, I could sit and look at the cross. Remember what Jesus did for me. That would also be kind of equally beneficial in the same sort of way. Now, Jesus didn't command that. He didn't ordain that. So it's not an ordinance. But that's the only difference. Jesus said, when you're going to remember me, here's a good way to do it. You could eat some bread, drink some wine, and then you'll remember me. And it's a mere memorial. The recent aversion to the use of the word sacrament and approaching it as a means of grace seems to be a historical anomaly even for Baptists. In my, I'm going to just say extensive reading of of Baptist source material, I have never read an early Baptist call either baptism or the Lord's Supper a mere symbol, a mere memorial, or use other languages to convey that idea. A mere symbol, again, can't kill you. A mere symbol is not powerful. The very idea of like a cross keeping a vampire away is just a goofy thing from bad movies, cartoons, and, and jokes, right? Because this symbol, two lines intersecting by itself, isn't going to keep any evil person away. In the same way, if these are just a symbol by themselves, they aren't going to do anything to draw you near to God and convey to you the benefits of redemption or serve as a means of grace. Of course, it's not the action itself, but the heart of the person that is central here, that it's going to determine whether this is effective, effectual, or not, uh, whether this uh, serves, if it is effective, uh, to bless you or to curse you, to give you life or to uh, make you sick. Uh, Marks of the church, though, include simply preaching of the word and the sacraments. That's how central this is here. Now, now, Luther, when he began writing on these topics, he said, what are the marks of the church? There are two, baptism and Lord's Supper, the sacraments and the preaching of the word. If you have both of those rightly done, preaching of the word in Orthodox faith, right administration of the sacraments, you have the church present. By the time he was done writing on it, he had a third one, which was church discipline. You have to have all three of these things present and then you've got a church. Opposite happened when he's writing about the sacraments. He starts with three. Uh, And and this is coming out of seven, by the way. So he's coming out of a church where there are seven sacraments. Goes back to the scriptures and he starts with baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. You confess your sins and the church absolves you. Luther never got away from that being a good idea. And I think rightly so. We're together going to confess our sins uh, and because of COVID the deacons aren't up there with me, and so I will again declare, not by my power, but by the word of God, that your sins are forgiven. It's a good thing, but it's not a sacrament. He comes out he comes out of it with two just baptism and the Lord's Supper. The seven in the in the Catholic Church were baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, which is the the standard Roman Catholic term for the Lord's Supper, reconciliation, uh, that that's going to be confession and, and receiving Absolution, Marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick uh, for a time also called last rites. Uh, and these are all on equal footing then. And they're all kind of, it's almost like, and I don't want to be sacrilegious, but it reminds me of a video game where you can run around and kind of collect, like Sonic collecting rings. And your sins make you drop them all, and then you can collect more. And certainly that's an unfair way to paint broadly everyone In the medieval church, there certainly are extant writings of saints who were convicted of sin in their hearts and very cognizant of the ever-present weight of guilt and wanting to be washed in the blood of Jesus, yes. But for the illiterate masses, the presentation was, hey, if you want to be good with God, make sure you put some money in this can and then you can come in here and you can have, uh, well, you can't have the cup, but you can have the bread and... We, you know, we'll baptize your babies. We'll sprinkle them. And, and to that degree, Luther looked at it and said, this is an abomination and we need to start purging things that are not of Christ, that aren't commanded in God's word. Uh, very near the beginning of his reformation, uh, we go down from seven to two. Now, I don't think that it had built up to seven through clerical abuse or heresy. I think it was just a natural... Um, process of the church saying this is important, this is talked about in scripture, this is something that is beneficial and as things became uh, more and more formalized by papal bull and church council and as these early church councils had already hashed out the core of orthodox Christian doctrine we get out now into kind of outlying things and they start formalizing, well, this is how the sacrament of marriage works. This is how the sacrament of reconciliation is meant to work. And they become uh, just as formalized as baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then they become equal to them as, as sacraments. Uh, the Reformation returned to the Bible and the earliest teachings of the church strips all that away. And yet it doesn't strip away the word or the idea of a sacrament. It is, you know what, I think that's a good probably spot, spot to uh, pause, and we'll start next week looking at baptism itself, and uh, how is it that baptism serves as a means of grace? How is it that it does in some way convey benefits of redemption? Uh, the questions here are gonna ask us who are the proper recipients? Are infants of such as are professing to be baptized? uh proper uh subjects of the administration of baptism and predictably it's going to say no only those who have put their faith in jesus christ baptism rightly administered by immersion or dipping the whole body of the person in water in the name of the father son and the holy spirit according to christ's institution Uh, and we're going to get then into uh a number of questions about what what it means to have been baptized Is it simply something that you do in order to mark an occasion like getting a tattoo or does it set a new trajectory? Does it have a real impact on your life? And then we will probably the next week or the one after maybe get into the idea of uh, the Lord's Supper as well and talk about how it is a means of grace.